Would you turn to John chapter 1, your Bibles, as our young people are being dismissed for children's church with the Piros. Sixth grade and down. John chapter 1. I want to read a series of a few texts from John's gospel, and the theme of this morning's message will become clearly apparent in these verses, and then I want to tie it to, you know, I figured as I was preparing for the message this morning, uh, this past week, I was thinking, you know, if the wise men took five months to come see Jesus... I don't think I'm quite ready to leave Christmas yet for the real reason. Okay. All of the trappings of the commercialization stuff, I'm glad that's gone. I'm glad that the high quantities of sugar saturated treats are lessening. How many of you are feeling the slog of all of that? But when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ's incarnation, I don't ever want to get over that. John chapter 1, verse number 4. In him was life. Of course, that him is Jesus. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Uh, Many commentators uh, interpret uh, that word comprehended, uh, the idea of the darkness could not take it over, could not put it out, could not hold it down. Okay. Jesus is the light, and he shined in the darkness, and as real as the darkness is, it cannot put out the light of Jesus Christ. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Look at chapter 3, verse number 19. Chapter 3, verse number 19. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now remember, the light lights every man that comes into the world. But there are those who turn away from the light because they love their darkness. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved, uncovered, exposed. And Jesus would even talk about that later on in the Gospel of John. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Remember in John 6, the people asked the Lord, what work must we do to have eternal life? And the one work, if I can say it this way, is to believe on Jesus Christ. Now look, if you would, at John chapter 8, verse number 12. The context of John 8 is Jesus' teaching in the temple, the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles. As part of that feast, the Jewish leaders would stand four menorahs 80 feet tall on the temple courtyard. 80 feet tall, that's the equivalent of the closest poplar tree out here, if you're looking for a frame of reference to symbolize the nation of Israel being the followers of God, being the light of the world, and also 
picturing to the world around that the nation of Israel, they were the ones who had the presence of God, the Shekinah glory. And in that backdrop, Jesus says these words, John chapter 8, verse number 12, Then Jesus spake again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What a profound statement. That's why these liberal theologians that talk about Jesus not thinking or realizing that he was God, they don't know their Bibles. Or maybe they do and choose not to believe it. But Jesus clearly in this statement when he said, I am, that's a statement of his self-profession of deity. But when he said, I'm the light of the world, he's the same in that context as saying, I am the Shekinah. Okay. Look, if you would, at John chapter 12 in verse number 35. John chapter 12, verse 35. Then Jesus saith unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus. And then to give a physical illustration, the Bible says he departed and did hide himself from them. Notice verse 44, Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Anybody have a guess what the theme of the message this morning is? Jesus is the light. Let's pray. Father... As we consider the importance of this as it relates to the incarnation 2,000 years ago and then as it relates to how we view uh, the world in which we live through the lens of the light of Christ, the reality of Christ. I pray that at the beginning of this year our hearts would be stirred and thrilled at the fact that Jesus is the light. And I pray this in his name. Amen. As it relates to light as an illustration, I'm not even going to try and explain it scientifically. I will read to you an interesting explanation of the nature of light that I read just so you can understand that I am not going to try and explain the science of light. Science tells us that light is constituted of three rays a group or groups of wavelengths distinct from each other, no one of which without the other would be light. Each ray has its own separate function, that is, of these three rays. The first originates the light, the second formulates, illuminates, or manifests, and the third consummates. Understand that? The first, by the way, we're finite, he's infinite, he's the one who said let there be light, we'll just leave it with him, right? The first ray, often called invisible light, is neither seen nor felt. The second is both seen and felt. The third is not seen but is felt as heat. Whoa. I'm reminded of a physics professor who asked one of his students in university class one day to explain the nature of heat and cold. And this is about how I would have thought to have explained it, my simplicity Uh, The student said, well, 
heat expands things and cold contracts things. And the physics professor said, give an illustration. He said, well, in the summer when it's hot, the days are longer. <laughs> and in the winter when it's cold, the days contract, they're shorter. That's about how far I can go in explaining light. But you know, it's like a computer. I don't know how it works, but I know this, that when I turn it on, it helps me. And I don't know a lot about how light works, but I know this, that when I flip that switch, it's a wonderful help. I brought one of my favorite tools this morning. I'm not going to shine anybody's eyes. The kids got this for me Christmas two years ago. Look at how bright that is. And it even has several settings. Okay, it's versatile. Very helpful, very handy as light. There's just one problem with this light. And I found this out the hard way in the crawl space several months ago. When the charge goes out, it goes out. I don't care how much it's helping me at the time. And this, it doesn't give any warning. There's no beep. There's no warning light. There's no fading. So I got time to make a mad dash out of the crawl space. It just goes out. But I'm glad to tell you that when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ as the light, he is perfectly and completely reliable. Do you think about the illustration of the Lord, one of his seven I am's, I am the light of the world. You think about the fact that light affects everything about life. In the process of photosynthesis, vitamin D that our bodies need, you think about how a person who maybe has been removed from light long term, how it becomes harmful to their health. Life affects, or light affects everything. Light gives direction. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So when Christ speaks of his being the light of the world, he is speaking about the direction that he gives. Light gives protection. It allows you to see so that if there's any danger that is exposed, light helps you inspect. You're looking closely at something. Light projects images, and the Lord is the light, projects for us to see visibly in life what the Father is like. Light also has an interesting property as well. It disinfects. It cleanses. And so when we think about the Lord as the light, we think about all of these illustrations, and though I can't describe scientifically light very well, I do understand in some measure the tremendous help that Christ is to us when it comes to the exposing of our sin, when it comes to the giving us the direction that we need for eternal life, when it comes to showing us the Father, when it comes to protecting us from the dangers of this life, when it comes to all of these different aspects, Christ is the light of life. When we think about the cleansing property of light, I'm reminded of the story I heard recently of a lady who had been famous for years for her sourdough bread. And you ladies know how with your sourdough you have a starter that's bacterial yeast that you keep alive. And uh, all of a sudden, though, her sourdough starter died and she could never resurrect it. And for the longest time, she struggled with what the problem was. And they finally found out that her husband had installed UV light in the ductwork of the heating and air system. And that UV light was so powerful that it was killing the bacteria, all the bacteria in the house, including the lady's bacteria in her yeast for her sour bread starter. Okay. Light is powerful. I think about how quickly light travels. And by the way, what an illustration this is to us. 
186,000 miles a second. That means in one tick on that clock, light has traversed or gone around the globe seven times. So I don't care what kind of danger you're in, how remote you may feel, Jesus is the light. He's there. So one of the wonderful metaphors or qualities uh, of description that the Bible uses of Christ and that he uses of himself. One of the seven I am's of the Gospel of John is that he's the light. I think about the fact that when the prophet Isaiah foretold the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he described the, the atmosphere, if you would, the nature of the world into which Christ would be coming. Listen to it in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. So Isaiah, 700 years before Christ came, he's describing this is what the world's going to be like when Jesus comes. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. So they walked in darkness. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And then as if to answer the question, you drop down, okay, so what was the light that shined? How did it shine? These people that were in darkness, verse number six, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a child. I had never put verse two together with verse number six. You can imagine I had a miniature revival in the study. Here's this world saturated in darkness. The people sitting in darkness, they see a great light. What was the light? Rather, who was the light? The light was this child born, this son given, whose name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Malachi the prophet, some 450 years before Jesus would come would address those that fear God. And he would say to those that fear God, to you, the Son, capital S-U-N, of righteousness is risen with healing in his wings. The cleansing power of light. And I want you to understand that Christ as the light gives us hope and peace and joy Because he shines in the darkness that surrounds us. Often our modern concept of Christmas is warm, benign, glowing, and sadly sometimes shallow. There's a sweetness to it. But if we're not careful, that sweetness can be imbalanced if we fail to see all of the realities of the first century into which Christ was born. Have you ever wanted to, as you held in your hand a Christmas card with this warm, glowing picture of the manger scene on it, have you ever just wanted to step into that scene? I mean, it just looks so serene and calm, and it looks like there are no troubles there. If I could just step into that scene... Just kind of nuzzle up next to one of those sheep and the shepherds are there and Joseph and Mary just look so calm. But the reality, now stick with me, of the first century was that the events surrounding the coming of Christ included the skepticism of Zechariah. A man who was a God-fearer who though an angel angel directly addressed him, he still didn't believe it. 
The reality of the scene into which Christ was born was the struggle of Joseph, who being a just man even, when he found that his betrothed was with child and he didn't know the details yet, was minded, the Bible says, to put her away privately. To do so could have possibly exposed her to stoning. But the angel came to him, as you well remember, and gave him the details that she is with child of the Holy Ghost. This is God in the flesh who's being born. And so Joseph had to take a step of faith, take Mary as his wife, even though it would bring him under the cloud of suspicion as well. The skepticism of Zechariah, the struggle of Joseph, the suspicion that would hang over Mary's head. Jesus would even have to deal with it. The Gospel of John records that at one time the enemies of Jesus came to him and they said, We be not born of fornication. The implication of their sneer is that there was a cloud over Jesus' birth. Mary had to live her life with that. There was the strain of everyday life, the tyranny of Rome, the religious tyranny of the Jews the burden of taxes, the inconvenience of travel. I thought about this with Joseph. When he agreed to marry Mary, and then they left from Nazareth to travel the 80 miles to Bethlehem, they would be there for a period of time, sometime less than two years, and then have to flee Bethlehem to go to Egypt for a period of time, and then from Egypt back around to Nazareth, I wonder if there were ever any days Joseph's like, man, I didn't know what I was signing up for with all this traveling. This transiency on the move all the time. All of his own life ambitions set aside for the sake of Mary and this baby. The travail of Mary's birth when an innkeeper, for whatever reason, couldn't even find a place for a mother in the travail of birth to deliver this child. And she had to be consigned to the barn. The reality of the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem because of Herod's jealousy and hatred estimated some 25, maybe 30 babies. And I think almost as offensive as all of it was the so what of Jesus' own people. The fact that, generally speaking, the chief priests and scribes knew the prophecy, knew where the baby would be born, and yet no record of any of them ever going. He came into his own, and his own received him not. The so what of his own people. And yet, I want you to get this this morning. We still look back 2,000 years on that scene and I still have these overwhelming warm thoughts, even though I know the reality. Why is that? Why do I look back in the midst of the suspicion, in the midst of the skepticism, in the midst of all of that reality of the darkness of the first century, why do I look back and I still want to step into that picture on the Christmas card? You want to know why? Because Jesus is the light. He's the one that brings beauty out of all that mess. He's the one who brings hope into the midst of that darkness. He's the one. 
as the light. And it's the very reality of Christ as the light that causes us to view the Christmas story as we do 2,000 years later. But here is the connector. I want you to get this. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we're in the midst of our own darkness. There are some who would argue and say it's even darker now than it was back then. And I suppose in some ways a case could be made for that. As we look around in our dark world, you say, Pastor, are you being pessimist? No, no, I'm not. We look around in our own world and we see the darkness of doubt. We see the darkness of distractions. How easily I get distracted. And you look around and you see how easily other of God's people get distracted by the cares of this world. Even worse is when those who've been brought up in Bible-believing church circles depart. And for whatever reason, they go their own way. Some would bemoan the declining attendance in churches and how many churches are closing the doors. By the way, let me just remind you, God has never needed a majority. Even if it's a moral one. All he needs is a willing heart. And he can take a David in the valley and bring down the Philistines. He can take a Gideon and his 300 and destroy tens of thousands of Midianites. He can turn their own swords against each other. He doesn't need a majority. And so even as we look around and see declining, it can be easy for us to think the darkness is overcoming. Even as we look at deviancy as it relates to the institution of marriage and how people view a child's life in the womb and even out of the womb. We deal with the disappointments of life and how things don't go the way that we expected. And just the reality of living in a sin-cursed earth and the difficulties that come with that. We bemoan the fact and grieve at the fact that we see socialism growing in its influence in our government. And the dictatorship that comes with that. And we think about physical disease and we think about physical death. And let me tell you something, the darkness is alive and well. But I want you to understand that the same thing that brought light to the darkness of the world 2,000 years ago is the same person who brings light to today as well. And may I say this? The reality of who he is as the light has only grown in the past 2,000 years. When he came as a babe in a manger 2,000 years ago, there were prophecies about his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his glorious, victorious resurrection and in his ascension back to the right hand of the Father and prophecies even about the founding of the church and the spiritual gifts that he would give. Hundreds of prophecies that were yet to be fulfilled as he lay as a baby in a womb or in a, in, in a manger. But I want you to understand something. Those prophecies have been fulfilled and the light in that sense is all the brighter for us 2,000 years later. Because we have the assurance of seeing the work of his life on earth and his death and his burial and his resurrection. It's all accomplished, finished. And he's coming again. Yes. 
So the very thing that allows us to look at a Christmas card of an artist's representation of the manger scene 2,000 years ago, and even as we acknowledge all of the reality of the darkness that surrounded the context of that time, the thing that allows us to look at that and have hope and joy and peace, and may I say a true sense of spiritual warmth in our hearts, is because at the center of all of it is the light of Jesus Christ. But the thing that thrills my heart is the light is as bright or brighter today as it was 2,000 years ago. And so that even as we look around and we acknowledge the reality of the darkness of sin and the darkness of man's rebellion against God and things waxing worse and worse, as the scripture says. And our hearts break over young people who've been raised up and should know better going their own way. By the way, let's make sure that we're not the cause of driving some of them away. Just a little side note there. But even as we acknowledge the reality of those things, I want you to understand the light has not gotten dimmer. So that with that perspective, get it, we can even look at today and through the lens of Christ as the light, we can have hope and joy and peace. And we can proclaim it to a world in darkness. So let's just banish pessimism. And, and I know the spirit of iniquity and the spirit of Antichrist is already at work, but I heard somebody say this years ago. Yeah, I'm not into all those conspiracy theories. Okay, put them in their place for crying out loud. No conspiracy theory is bigger than the light of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand there's a conspiracy, and it's maybe even bigger than some people realize, but I will tell you this, that as big as any real conspiracy may be, it is not bigger than the one who lives inside of you. Okay. So that altered perspective with which we can view the first century through the lens of the light of Christ and how you insert him into the, any of the picture. And it's what warms it. We can have that same perspective 2,000 years later. But what does it require? It requires a steadfast, daily, disciplined focus on Jesus is the light. There's a wonderful application of this in the book of Hebrews. That's essentially one of the things the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews does. There are big questions that he's seeking to answer. How does a person get saved? Many of the Jews of the first century thought that salvation was mediated through angels. They thought it was mediated through Moses, through uh, the Levitical system, through the priesthood of the Levites of the Old Testament era 
Moses, who can be better than Moses? They thought it was maybe because they were Jew they were saved, and it was mediated through the fact that they were one of the people that followed Joshua into the promised land. And look at the great victory God gave there. And there were all these different competing ideas. And the author of Hebrews basically comes down and says, so if that's the case, he quotes Psalm chapter number 8, how come we're not seeing everything made right? If those are the means of salvation, and what does he say, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 9? The answer to the question is this, but we see Jesus. who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death that he, I love this, by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Not just the justice of God, but by the grace of God. Get it, when Jesus experienced the cruel death that he did on that old rugged cross, it was by God's grace that he tasted that. Because that's what was necessary in order for you and for me to have what we have. How are we going to communicate with the Lord? That's another question. How do we have contact with the divine? Oh, the author of Hebrews says, Consider the high priest and the apostle of your profession. The apostle, the one sent by God to give us God's message. The high priest, the one sent from us, representing us to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the high priest and the apostle. Seeing then, if you, the question, how do we have intercession? Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed in the heavens, even Jesus, the Son of God. A high priest who is tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Look to Jesus. He ever liveth to make intercession. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 24. What about the daily battle with sin? These besetting sins. And the author of Hebrews said, looking unto Jesus, the author. You want victory over sin? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of God. What's the solution for perspective in life when we're so easily distracted by the temporal, by the earthly, by the mundane? It's to realize Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 24 that we are going to Jesus. Get this, more than a place as wonderful as it would be, a place where there's no night there, more wonderful than a place is the person who will be the light of that city. Chapter number 13, verses 8 and 2, the author of Hebrews, as people are so easily distracted by circumstances, he said, listen, if you want to have contentment, you want to be settled, when everything's in upheaval all around you, remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let us go to him without the camp. Let us just take our place by his side. I told Grace this morning. By the way, that was a duet, you know. I told Grace, I said, I'm halfway thinking about having you sing that song at the end of the message. And she said, if that's what you want, what you feel the Lord wants, I will do it. But she goes, I can tell you I'm going to sit there and think about singing that song the whole service.
I don't know what your need is this morning. But I can tell you this, I know the solution. If you're here today and you don't know Christ personally, you can before you leave today. Now, I didn't say, do you know Christ? Do you know him personally? There's a lot of people, they say they know Christ like they would know a famous athlete or know the President of the United States. They know about him. But do you know him personally? If you don't, there's a lighthouse on the hillside (laughs) that overlooks life's sea. In the night it sends out a light that I might clearly see. And that light that shines in darkness now will safely lead us home. If it wasn't for that old lighthouse, tell me where would this ship be? Everybody that lives around me says tear that lighthouse down. The big ships don't sail this way anymore. There's no use of it standing around. But my mind goes back to that stormy night when just in time I saw the light. Yes, the light from that old lighthouse standing up there on the hill. And I thank God for the lighthouse. And the song answers the question, who is the lighthouse? King Jesus is the lighthouse. And from the rocks of sin, he has shown the light around me that I might clearly see. If it wasn't for the lighthouse... Tell me where would this ship be? You may be sitting here and say, Pastor, I know Christ is Savior, but the hope meter, the joy meter, the peace meter is much lower than it needs to be. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior. Life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now I'm going to go out on a limb. Where's Audrey? Will you sing that song again? Let's do it. And then we'll close.